Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. I wanted to share this with you because I think this kind of embodies what I wanted to kind of share with you today um, out of chapter 10. But back in around 1885, there was a Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball. And he may not be too famous, he may not be too well known, but um, he won a shoe, clerk, a shoe clerk, excuse me, to Jesus Christ by the name of Dwight Lyman Moody. And you probably know who D.L. Moody was. This Sunday school teacher was influential in him coming to faith in Christ back in 18, around 1855. Around the 1870s, the evangelist D.L. Moody traveled to England and he awakened the heart of a young pastor by the name of F.B. Meyer. And in the late 1870s, F.B. Meyer began preaching at college campuses. And there happened to be a student by the name of Wilbur Chapman who put his faith in Christ for salvation. Around 1893, Wilbur Chapman started working with D.L. Moody and he employed a former baseball player as his assistant by the name of Billy Sunday. In the early 1900s, Billy Sunday became an evangelist, and he preached in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's formed a club called the Billy Sunday Layman's Evangelistic Club. And that club invited an evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham to preach at Charlotte, and in 1934, Mordecai, Mordecai Ham held a tent meeting in Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina, where Billy Graham gave his heart to the Lord. It's an amazing story when you follow that line from 1855 down to 1934. God used a Sunday school teacher. You know, we have these for Sunday school teachers and children's ministry. And I tell you, sometimes you think, you know, I'm just, uh, somebody's got to watch the kids. Man, don't have that attitude because God can use you to minister to life. You, you don't know. You could be ministering to the next Billy Graham or Bobby Graham or, you know, <laughs> whatever. I'm trying to think of a girl's name. <laughs> Belinda Graham. There we go. That's a better name. <laughs> you don't know who you are, uh, you know, how you can impact somebody. In chapter 10, we're going to see Peter the person that God uses. And in chapter 10, we're going to see Cornelius, the person that needs God, and the impact of their meeting the it will result in the salvation of the first Gentile believer. Cornelius is the first Gentile believer. And that what happened that we're reading in chapter 10 reverberates all the way down to our generation here. I'm willing to bet the majority of us are not Jewish uh, you know, by blood or by nature, by nature, by blood. You know, we're not Jewish nationalists, nationally, I guess, whatever you want to call it. Most of us are Gentiles. And that Cornelius, that event that we're reading about in, 10, in chapter 10, man, that comes all the way down to us in this generation here. And so one of the things I wanted to look at this morning, I wanted to ask this question. Do you want to be a person that God uses like Peter, like Edward Kimball, like D.L. Moody and so many others that God uses to impact this world for his kingdom.
because that's what this is all about. This morning, my prayer, and I've been praying about this as I've been studying this, is that we can learn to apprehend the qualities, because I'm going to point out some qualities that we're going to see in Peter um, in his life and, and in what we read about in chapter 10 that are qualities of the person God uses. So we left off in chapter 9, and that was where Peter was in Joppa, which is the modern city of Jaffa, uh, Jaffa, Jaffa, I don't know how you pronounce it, in Israel. And uh, we know that uh, in chapter 9, uh, Peter had raised a, a lady by the name of Tabitha. She's also called Dorcas. She had died, and he raised her to life. An amazing miracle. And when we get to chapter, actually the end of chapter 10, verse uh, 43 of chapter 9, excuse me, end of chapter 9, verse 43, there's a sentence that's, that closes out that chapter and it says this, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. And uh, that actually, that photograph is one that I took. You can go to Israel today and you can actually see that, uh, see that place, um, the, the, the home where uh, they say that that is the home of Simon the tanner. Um, you know, as in our culture, and uh, in our generation, we would just read chapter 9, verse 43, that, you know, Simon stayed in the house uh, of, or Peter stayed in the house of Simon the Tanner. And we would just kind of read that and then go on to chapter 10. If you were a Jewish person in Peter's day, that would have like, that would have like, whoa, what is going on here? This is a big deal. And uh, it's noteworthy that Peter would stay in the home of a tanner. What, did, what was a tanner? Well, a tanner, they took hides and skins and they converted them into leather by uh, soaking them in lime and leaves and juices of different kinds of plants. But the thing is, they were always dealing with dead animals, with carcasses. And so based on Leviticus chapter 11, verses 35 to 40, a tanner by virtue of his occupation, would always be ritually unclean based on Levitical law, as it's pointed out in, in chapter 11. One of the rabbis said this, it's impossible for the world to do without tanners, but woe to him who is a tanner. It was not a, a desired occupation. If your son, you know, if you were living in Peter's day and, and you said, son, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a tanner. You'd be like, uh, let's try something else, you know. Um, here's the, another thing. A Jewess, in other words, a, a young Jewish woman could sue for divorce if she discovered that her husband was a tanner. Now, I don't know, maybe he kept his occupation a secret, you know, but after they were getting married or they were, uh, they were engaged, whatever, you know, betrothed, if she realized he's a tanner, she legally could file for divorce because of that. Um, so it, it was, it's a big deal what we read here. Later on, we'll read that Simon had his house by the sea. And according to the laws of that time, a tanner had to live at least 75 feet outside a village because of his constant ritual uncleanness and the foul smells that came from the, that process of tanning hides. So it's a significant verse. And the first characteristic of the person God's, God uses that we see in Peter is that he's teachable. He's teachable. Because he's moving from Jewish legalism towards grace. 
God is softening Peter's heart. Think about it. As Peter, the disciple Peter, he's walking with Jesus for three and a half years, and some of the things that Jesus does just kind of like boggles their mind. One of the things Jesus did was he violated Jewish legalism of Sabbath observances. They were like, man, he's, what's going on here? And Jesus explained why. They ate with unwashed hands. Now, that doesn't mean that they were, you know, dirty as far as germs and stuff, but there was a ritual of washing your hands according to the, the laws of their day, of their, their traditions. And uh, they ate with unwashed hands because Peter had learned from Jesus that it's not what enters a person's mouth that makes them unclean, but what proceeds from their heart. And so Peter is learning these things as he goes. And so Peter's, we see this here in verse 43 of chapter 9, that Peter is teachable. He's growing. He's changing. You know, people who are not teachable are spiritually prideful. And I'll just be honest with you. People with spiritual pride are the hardest people to minister to as a pastor. They're the hardest people because they have their theology all figured out. They have God contained in a box of their own understanding, and they never consider that, you know, I wonder if maybe I might possibly not have it all figured out. Maybe, I'm, maybe I don't really understand everything. An unteachable person is a hard person to minister to. Well, Peter was teachable, and we see that in verse four, uh, 43. And as a result of being teachable, Peter is growing in his knowledge and his faith. He's becoming more like Christ. In reality, he's becoming more like Jesus Christ. And another quality that we see here is that Peter is flexible. Think about it. You know, earlier in, in Acts, as we're reading about Peter, you know, he's walking by, miracles are taking place through, you know, of course it's the, the Lord doing it through Peter, but all these miracles are taking place through the apostles, including Peter. Uh, he's walking around, people are, are hoping to get under the shadow of Peter so that maybe, you know, even if a shadow passed by, he'd heal them, or that the shadow would heal them. I, don't, I think that might have been just what they were thinking, I don't know if it was actually taking place that way. But you think about that. And Peter's the one who the Holy Spirit revealed Ananias and Sapphira's sin to him, to them, to him, excuse me. Um, so God is just working through a mighty way through Peter, through the apostle Peter. And he went from this glorious, that miracle of raising Tabitha from the dead. He's just, like I shared a couple weeks ago, he was just copying what Jesus did. God was moving mightily through Peter, and now he's in the home of a tanner one of the most least, you know, uh, envious occupations. What that speaks to me is that Peter is flexible. He went from performing a glorious miracle to staying in the home of a tanner. And, you know, if you want to be a person that God uses, you got to be flexible. You really have to be flexible. Um, I've found this out in ministry. I find this out being involved with the, with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association flexibility is the key. Someone said this morning in our worship practice, you know, uh, blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. And uh, that's a true, that's, that's a truism in ministry. You have to be flexible. And so we see Peter here. He's, you know, he, maybe he's wondering, why am I here at the home of a tanner? Well, God has him exactly where he wants him to be. And the other thing I think that stands out about this is Peter's humility. 
Paul wrote this in Romans 12, 16, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. It's just the humility of staying with a tanner. Again, in our culture, we read that and we just think nothing of it. But for a Jewish person, that was a big deal, especially in that day and in that time. Like Philip in Acts chapter 8, God has Peter in the exact place where he wants him to be. Whether it's a, maybe it's an uncomfortable place for Peter, but that's where God wants him. Because that's where uh, God's going to minister through Peter in that circumstance and in that place. So we get to chapter 10. Verse 1, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. A centurion was someone who was in charge of 100 soldiers. So this guy is an officer in the Roman army, and he lived in Caesarea. Caesarea, that's actually a photograph I took. Um, Caesarea was, it's in the northern part of Israel. Um, it's a, it, and that time it was a Roman seaport. It was built by Herod the Great. He built an aqueduct that brought fresh water from Mount Carmel down to, uh, down to the uh, the port there at Caesarea, you can actually go and see the ruins of that aqueduct if, aqueduct if you go out there. Um, he also built a hippodrome, and uh, in the middle of the picture, that this camera is getting, this one's getting a little harder to see, but there's kind of looks like kind of a, bit, a big flat area. There's a few people standing in the middle. That actually is the hippodrome, or what's left of the hippodrome. A hippodrome is where they race hippos. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a hippodrome. <laughs> It was a stadium where they raced horses and chariots. Um, and uh, anyways, they had an amphitheater. They basically, Caesarea was the, kind of like the hub of Roman luxury and Roman, uh, excuse me, Greek culture. And so that's where this Cornelius is living. And he's a Roman. The Bible tells us that he was devout. That means that he had a deep and solemn respect for God the God of Israel. He feared God with all his household. That tells us a few things about Cornelius. First of all, he's a leader. He's a leader. He's a, he is a positive influence in his family, and we'll find out later, even in the people that work or that are working around him. And, you know, he's genuine. He's not a hypocrite. We're also told that he gave alms generously. Now, giving alms would be something, that's one of the things that the Jewish people did as part of their faith in, in, in uh, Judaism was to give alms, or to give money to poor people. And so he gave alms to Jewish people, think about it, that he ruled over, that he was that they were his subjects, so to speak, in a, in a certain sense. And it says that he gave generously. He wasn't a selfish person. I like what Psalm 41 one says, Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. And Cornelius was a good man. And he also prayed to God, the Bible says, always. Cornelius was about as close to Judaism as a person could get without becoming a proselyte. If he had been circumcised and, you know, he could have, been, he could have become a Jewish proselyte. He was that close to it 
because he wasn't circumcised. At least the scriptures doesn't tell us anything about that. And you know, when we read that, here's a guy who's giving to the poor. He's praying to God. He's a great example in his family. Uh, he's a generous person. He's a godly person. When, if you met him on the streets today, would you kind of think, man, that guy's, that guy's all right. I need to focus on some sinners somewhere. And yet Cornelius did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Good person, great person, better than maybe some Christians in some of the things that he did. And yet he's a person who desperately needs God. Externally, he did all the right things, but he still wasn't saved. He lived a life of luxury and privilege. You know, everything that you could want materially or need, he probably could get in his position. And yet, luxury and privilege didn't satisfy Cornelius. If he was in the military, and those of you that have been in the military, you know that's a very structured system. And he lived a life of structure and regimen. Some people like structure and regimen, right? You don't want any surprises in your life. I just want, if I know if I do this, I'm going to get this result. I just want my schedule. You know, I, everything's got to be laid out. And we like that. Some people really, really like that. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I like a little bit of free, uh, you know, maybe a little too much. But anyways, um, I, you know, some people are type A. I think I'm probably type Z. I'm pretty close to that. And anyways, but he lived a life of structure and regimen but that didn't satisfy him either. He lived a life of power and respect, and yet he realized there's still something missing in his life. He was even very religious, but he also still felt there's something missing. Cornelius was a God-fearer, but he was still outside of the Jewish faith, and yet he was hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And I love what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. But we move on here in verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. Now the ninth hour of the day would have been about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, or actually it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and that in the Jewish uh, in Judaism, that was the hour of prayer. And so here he's praying. We find out later that he was a fasting and praying. And he has this vision of an angel coming to him and speaking to him. He clearly saw an avenge, in, in a vision. He was awake, but God allowed him a vision or allowed him a glimpse into the spiritual dimension. You know, um, there was a book that I used to read. I forget the name of it now, but... Um, is it this present darkness? Might be no. Anyways, there's a book that I used to read, and it talked about angels. And someone probably knows which one I'm talking about. I'm looking at my wife because she probably remembers. Frank What's it? Frank yeah, Frank Peretti. You ever heard, read this book? And I forgot the title of it, but oh, I, I did. Okay, Whew, hey, <laughs> that's the third book I've read in my life. No, she can't. <laughs> um, but anyways. That book's it's it's a it's a it's fiction, but it's kind of cool because it talks about how you know people like here we're in church and we see people here, but there's these angels walking around, and there's a spiritual dimension that we're we're blind to right now, and every once in a while God gives a glimpse into a spiritual dimension. That's what He did with Cornelius. 
um, there. Occasionally, God gives us a glimpse. And in fact, it's so real, it wasn't just like, you know, like he just had this feeling or something. Later on, um, Cornelius himself is going to describe it in chapter, or later on to Peter, and he's going to say, behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. So, I mean, this was a real thing that Cornelius experienced. Verse 4, and when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. This is kind of interesting to me. Why Peter? Why send for Peter. And the reason why I ask that is because we know from Scripture that Philip the Evangelist was living in Caesarea by this time. He had settled into Caesarea. Why didn't the angel just send for, you know, it had been saved, saved on travel, right? Why not just use Philip? Well, I think the reason why is because God not only wanted to work through Peter, but he wanted to work in Peter. And God does that when you are ministering for the Lord. It's not just you, you know, I, I'm serving, I'm sacrificing. God's doing a work in you as well as working through you. And I think he was doing that with Peter. Well, why not Paul? After all, Paul was the apostle, or he would become the apostle to the Gentiles, right? Why not, why not Paul? Well, he's up in Tarsus, and God's doing a work in Paul's heart, preparing him for the ministry he's given him. Well, then the last question is, why did the angel just not share the gospel with Cornelius? And the reason why is because God chooses to use human vessels to share the gospel. I, I, I can't say why. I mean, it would make a lot more sense to just have an angel show up and just share the gospel and everybody would be like, whoa, okay, I believe, you know. But God chooses to use you and I. Flawed vessels, in some cases, cracks. You know, we've got chips and stuff. But God chooses to use you and I to share the gospel. God has a unique plan and a purpose for Peter, just like he has for you and myself. I like what Paul wrote in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear uh, to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord. God has a plan for you and your life. And a purpose for your, and it may not be the exact same purpose and plan that he has for my life or for the person sitting next to you. God has a unique plan for each one of us. So why choose Peter? I don't know, but God chose him. God had a purpose for it. Verse 7. And when the angel spoke to him, who had spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Notice one thing, and, and, I, and I recognize this because uh, Cornelius is a soldier, and uh, there's no hesitation. He recognizes the chain of command. There's someone who's superior to him who's telling him what to do, and uh, it's not, uh, do I jump or don't jump? It's how high do you want me to jump? It's basically, he's going he's gonna to do it. And so immediately, there's no hesitation on Cornelius' part. And it says that he sent two household servants and a devout soldier, devout soldier. And, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that Cornelius had an impact on not only his family, but those who worked around him. Just to give you a glimpse into Cornelius' character, listen to how they describe Cornelius 
to Peter in verse 22. It says, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. These guys have nothing but good things to say about their boss, Cornelius. Meanwhile, verse 9, back in Joppa, the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So the ninth hour was 3 p.m., so sixth hour would have been noon. And uh, that was also known as a time of prayer for the Jewish people. It was actually called the Mincha. And uh, going onto a flat top of a roof to seek solitude um, in that culture, it was a very common thing because a lot of the roofs were flat. It was just a good place to get up and maybe get a nice cool sea breeze and you know a little bit of quietness and stuff. And so it could have been why Peter went up there to pray. But I came across this law about the Menshaw. And it says this, a man may not enter into a bath nor into a tanner shop near the Menshaw. So it doesn't really show us in scripture, and I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but it's possible he just went up there because, hey, as a Jewish person, I can't pray in the house. I got to get out of the house and pray up there. That could have been why he was up on the rooftop. Anyways, notice what happens when people pray. Things happen. Verse 10. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So it's an object like a great sheet. And, you know, in my mind's eye, I got this big white, you know, sheet from a bed like you know and, and that's lowering down and it's opening up and there's all these animals of different kinds crawling around on it that greek word sheet could also be translated sail and uh, being a seaport maybe that's what it was it wasn't just a sheet it was like maybe a sail something that resembled a sail with all these animals on it what i think is interesting about that is you know god can use even the most familiar things that we know that we're familiar with to teach a true a truism to us. Um, I, Teresa was sharing about the women's uh, Christmas party, and, and uh, she gave women, um, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but she gave up bookmarks to, to women. And uh, she was talking about how the, the bookmarks are woven together and the strength. And, and I'm, I won't go into it, but, um, I, man, she was sharing that, and I'm like, Wow man, I want to steal that and make a sermon out of it. I said, you need to write that down because it's, it was such a cool picture. Um, and you can ask Teresa about it. She can share it with you. <laughs> um, anyways, it says a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And look at verse 14. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. There's two things that kind of point, that jump out of that verse. First of all, Peter's legalism is resurfacing just a little bit. You know, I mean, God's changing him. He's growing. He's teachable. But, you know, hey, he's been steeped in Jewish religion all his life. And so that legalism is sort of resurfacing. He says, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. That's the first thing that jumps out at me. The second thing that jumps out at me is the, is the absurdity of what he said. Not so, Lord. 
Not so, it actually translated as by no means. And it's not, there's another Greek word um, that means a blunt refusal. I, I'm not going to do it. That's not what he used. Yet it is more than a mild protest. It's a polite refusal with a reason given. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So what's absurd about this is that he basically says, no, Lord. And that's just like, how can you say that? A Lord is someone who is supreme in authority over, over you. And so how absurd is it to say, you could say no, Don. You could say no to you know, your coworker or something like that, and that's, that's fine. But to say no, Lord, it just, it's absurd. And yet how many times do we do that in our lives? You know, Lord shows us something. We clearly know that he's given us a, a commandment or he clearly wants us to do something. And what do we say? No, no, Lord, no, sorry, I'm not willing. Verse 15, and a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. I can really identify with Peter in so many ways. You know, the one first time this sheet's coming down, this object like a sheet with the animals on it, I, you know, and then, and then God says, you know, rise up and eat. You know, it's like, oh, maybe I didn't hear him right. Maybe, you know, I've got... I need to put my hearing aids in. Maybe I didn't hear it you know, quite right. Second time, well, that's kind of coincidental. I mean, I'm thinking how I think, right? That's kind of coincidental. Three times, I wonder if God's trying to say something to me. <laughs> God was. He said, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. I want to point out one verse or one word there, that object like a great sheet. That word object in the Greek is the, is, can also be translated a vessel or an implement. And what's interesting, it's the same word that's used for Paul when God was speaking to Ananias. When he was speaking to Ananias about Saul of Tarsus, he said, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of of Israel. That's the exact same word as the word object in this verse here. The vessel or implement. You know, and the reason why I bring that out is you and I are chosen vessels that God has used. And we've been cleansed. If you've come to faith in Christ Jesus, you're you're cleansed. Don't call yourself common or unclean. And what I mean by that is sometimes, you know, we, we, we fail. I, I sin. I have to repent. But sometimes I feel like, man, God can't use me because I'm such a goofball. I blow it so often. Don't call yourself common or unclean. God, if God's cleansed you, you are a chosen vessel for his purposes, just like Saul was. God can use you. In fact, he wants to use you warts and all for his kingdom purposes. Many times, I know I've, I've come and I was like, Lord, why am I even up here preaching to an audience? I should be in the audience taking notes. You know, why am I the one up here? And yet God's chosen to use me in that purpose. God wants to use you too. Verse 17, now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate, and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down, uh, go down with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. I always wonder, man, was that an audible voice? 
could have been. But I like this quote from C.S. Lovett. God does not need sound waves to fall on an eardrum to speak to a man. When it pleases him to do so, he can speak directly to one's mind where all sound waves are finally interpreted. I like that. I don't know if it was audible or not, but, but the Spirit was speaking to Peter, and Peter knew it was the Spirit. And the Spirit said, Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And, you know, how many times has the Lord told you to do something, and you're like, man, I wonder if that's the Lord. And maybe you're afraid to take that step of faith, because that's what Peter's being called to do, man. Take a step of faith. Don't doubt. Just take that step of faith. And I know I've had the Lord, you know, lay something on my heart, and, and I'm like, man, I don't know if that's you or not. And sometimes we're afraid to take that step because we go, well, what if it wasn't the Lord? What if, I'm, what if I'm making a mistake? What if it's just, you know, I had pizza last night and I got indigestion and it wasn't the Lord speaking to me. It just, you know, I had a big burp in the middle of the night and I thought, I thought somebody was speaking to me, you know. Listen, what if it's, what if it's not the Lord? I mean, I mean you know, if, if the Lord's telling you, if you, if, if you hear the Lord saying, you know, go kill someone, obviously that's not the Lord, right? I mean, it's common sense, right? But if it's something like, hey, go speak to your neighbor or go do this, you know, whatever it might be that's like not killing somebody or something like that. What if you do it and it's not the Lord? You know what? The more you take those steps of faith, the more you're going to start to recognize whether it is the Lord or not. I, I, I remember for a while there, uh, Teresa and I really felt like the Lord had called us to adopt the child. And uh, we started well, like this, okay, Lord, we, we really sense that this is what you're doing. And, and we went through all the process, and then, and then it, God closed the door. And I, I, can't, I can't say why he did it. Or, I don't know. But it wasn't a bad thing. It, I just I think this is what the Lord's calling, and I'm going to take a step. And if it wasn't, hey, the Lord's going to close the door. And I go, okay, well, now I kind of have an idea, you know, what's the Lord's voice and maybe what's my own voice. A little bit. I still, I'm, listen, I don't have it all figured out. Like, okay, that was the Lord. This is not, I'm still growing, and so are you. But the point is, take those steps of faith. Trust it. And through the practice of listening, you're going to start to recognize the voice of your shepherd. Verse 21, then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come down? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. In other words, they're saying, hey, God told us you need to come with us to go to this guy named, uh, to go to Caesarea to speak to our boss, Cornelius. I mean, that's basically what they're saying. Have you ever had someone come up to you and say, the Lord told me that you need to do this, or the Lord told me that you're going to be doing this? I've had people come up to me and say that before. They've prophesied over me and said, the Lord's, you know, telling you this and stuff. And, you know, I'm gracious. I really am gracious. I'm like, I'm thank you, you know, thank you. I don't, I don't dis, discard, disregard it just out of hand. But listen, if someone has a word for you from the Lord or a vision concerning you, I guarantee he's going to confirm it in your own heart. It's not just like, okay, Joe told me the Lord wants me to move to Timbuktu, so I guess that's the Lord. I'm moving to Timbuktu. No, God's going to lay it on my heart if he wants me to move to Timbuktu. He hasn't yet, by the way. Sorry, Joe. (laughs) 
If it's truly from the Lord, he will confirm it to you. What these men related to Peter, the Holy Spirit had already laid on Peter's heart. Listen, when there was a day years ago when I was walking a lunchtime walk and I was working for a large corporation here that I can't know. I was working for IBM at the time and I, was, I went for a lunchtime walk on a bike trail and uh, as I'm walking, I really sensed the Lord speaking to my heart and I felt him say, not, not audibly, but I, it's like my ear, it bypassed my eardrums and it was in my mind, I'm going to be a pastor. And I came home and I told Teresa, I said, Teresa, you're not going to believe this. I said, the Lord, I really feel like the Lord's calling me to be a pastor. I don't want to do it and don't tell anyone. <laughs> I literally said that. I don't want to do it and don't tell anyone. Don't, don't mention it, but I'm just sharing this with you. Six months later, some men from the Calvary Chapel up in, in St. Paul got together with me and they said, you know, we really feel like the Lord's called you to be a pastor. And I looked at them and I said, you know what? Six months ago, Lord laid that on my heart too. That's what God does. So if somebody lays something on you, man, don't freak out. Just don't like, oh, you know, I, you know. Or also don't just like jump and go, yeah, okay, that's the Lord. The Lord will confirm it. Trust him. Verse 23. Then he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them. And some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now, um, according to Jewish law, Peter should not have allowed Gentiles into his home, but he did. And we see more of Peter being teachable here. Man, this guy's growing. He's growing in his understanding of the heart of God. I love that. And uh, from chapter 11, we're going to find out that Peter took six Jewish believers with him. Now, according to Jewish law, you needed two or three witnesses to establish the truth of anything. And I think Peter's like, man, this is a big deal, you know, going to the Gentiles and stuff. I'm going to be in a Gentile's house. I better take some witnesses with me. And, and I think that's why he did. He took double the amount of witnesses needed to establish the truth of something. It could be. I don't know. Anyways, verse 24. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, lifting, lifted him up, excuse me, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. Can you put yourself into Peter's place there? An officer of the occupying forces is bowing down before you. What would you do? Would you, uh, you know, get out your phone and say, hey, wait a minute, I got to get that. Man, wait till my friends see this on Facebook, man. You take a selfie of you and your Roman soldier, you know. Um, would you get your, would you get a selfie of that? If you look at Peter, we see Peter's humility here. Hey, get up. I'm, I'm just a man also. I love that. Verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Do you get what he just said there? The picture was these objects, these animals. And God says, hey, what I've cleansed don't call common or unclean. Peter now is relating it to his situation with the Gentiles here. And he says, hey, what God's shown me that I shouldn't call any man common or unclean. 
What's happening here is Peter is taking what the Lord has revealed to him and he's applying it in his life to a current situation that he's going through. That's what you and I should be doing. Man, do you want to grow in your relationship with the Lord? Start applying what he reveals to you in your day-to-day life. Man, you're, you're doing a morning devotion, you're reading something, the Lord shows you something. Put it into practice in your life and you'll grow in your relationship with the Lord. And then verse 29, I love this. Therefore I came without objection as I was sent for. I ask then, for what reason have you sent me? You know, like that? I, I love that. <laughs> you know, it's easy for you and I reading this to be an armchair quarterback, right? I mean, Peter, duh. You know, Jesus gave the Great Commission, you know. Uh, you already heard the Great Commission. You've seen the gospel spread, spread from Jerusalem to Judea and then later on to Samaria. And duh, the next extension is to all the nations of the earth, right? Uh, that's the next logical conclusion. But I love that Peter doesn't assume that. I don't think it's not that he assumed that. I think he's just a little bit slow. He's Peter. I appreciate the question because you know what? I don't always have God's will pegged. or I know exactly what God's will is. Sometimes I'm like, I'm not really sure. Why am I here, Lord? I love that. that, that to me, that just shows the humanity of Peter. And again, I, that, Peter's a guy that I can really... I, I can really identify. I don't identify as much with Paul, but I definitely do with Peter, just because if you know me, then you could probably go, yeah, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> Verse 30. So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. You know one thing I can say about this? you know this is going to be a fruitful meeting. You, you just know it is. Why? Because the speaker is hearing from the Lord and he's applying it in his own personal life and the audience is present and they're attentive and they are expecting to hear a word from God through Peter. Man, you can't get a better combination than that. Things are going to happen. And of course, things do happen. Verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Excuse me. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, peaching, uh, excuse me, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him 
All the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Back in verse 29, Peter is not even absolutely sure why he's there at the house of Cornelius, but now it all clicks. Now it all makes sense. God shows no partiality. You see, the Jews considered themselves clean and the Gentiles unclean. The truth is, and Peter's understanding this, everyone is unclean until they're washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So Peter preaches what Cornelius and his guests needed to hear. They were hungry for the truth of the gospel. This is what they have been searching for, that inner peace which only comes through Christ Jesus. You know, I love this about the Franklin, the, the God Loves You tour, the, the last the one that we were part of here in Rochester. You know, don't assume that someone doesn't need the gospel. Everyone needs the gospel. It doesn't matter if they even look like they're the best, you know, they're very religious and good person. They do everything right, man. Everybody needs salvation through Christ alone. And Peter here, you know, it, it, the other thing I was thinking about was, you know, he mentions John the Baptist, and he, he talks about the fact, oh, you, you guys know this stuff about Jesus. And in my mind, I'm wondering, you remember when John the Baptist was preaching, and, and it says even Roman soldiers were coming to him saying, what must I do? I, I just, out of the, Scripture doesn't tell us, but I wonder, I wonder if Cornelius was maybe one of those soldiers whose heart was getting prepared for the coming of the Savior. It could be. I mean, I don't know. They had undoubtedly all heard about Christ's life and crucifixion, but Peter here is to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what does Peter do, man? He just simply preaches Jesus to him. That's all he does. He just preaches Jesus Christ to the crowd gathered. And the truth that Peter proclaims there in verse 43 was an earthquake that shook the early church. Whoever, whoever, man, a key word. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, female, young, old, slave, master, it doesn't matter. Whoever puts their trust in Christ Jesus will receive forgiveness of sins and be saved. Everybody. I love that. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. This is an interesting verse. I mean, Peter, he's still speaking, and the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter. You know, that's not the first time that Peter's been interrupted. On the mountain of transfiguration, where Christ was transfigured, it says, while he was still speaking, the Father, God the Father, said, interrupted Peter, said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 25, Peter, uh, Jesus has gone into a house, and Peter's kind of slow in going into the house, and the Pharisees stop uh, Peter and say, hey, does your master pay taxes, pay the temple tax? And uh, it says in Matthew 25, um, uh, when he got into the house, the Lord Jesus, and the word in that Greek there is he stopped him short. So in other words, he interrupted Peter before Peter could say anything. And, and Jesus said to him, what do you think, Simon? 
From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from their strangers? And then here in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter. Father interrupted him, the son interrupted him, and the Holy Spirit interrupts him. Listen, the person that God uses must be flexible. And so I'm going to ask you this question. Can the Lord interrupt you? Can he interrupt you? Can he interrupt your day? Can he interrupt your plans, your conversation, your situation in life, the circumstances that you're in right now? Maybe your comfort. Can he interrupt your comfort level? Can he interrupt your control? You know, some people like to have everything where I, as long as I'm in control, everything's okay. Can he interrupt that? Because if you want to be a person that God uses, I got, I got news for you. He is going to interrupt. Listen, if you discombobulate when your schedule gets altered, you're going to have a hard time uh, serving the Lord. And this is why, and I, I hate to break this news to you, but he doesn't plan his will around your schedule. I've, I've, I've come to realize that. Ministry happens when ministry happens, and it's not always convenient. But God's not on my time schedule. I need to be on his time schedule. So it says here that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles just as they were on the Jews at Pentecost. How did they know that? Well, because they heard them speaking in tongues. They heard them, the Gentiles, speaking in tongues. It says magnifying God, and that's what tongues are. Tongues, the gift of tongues is magnifying God. It's not prophecy. It's not thus saith the Lord. That's a word of prophecy. No, tongues is magnifying, glorifying the Lord, just as the believers at Pentecost were speaking the wonderful works of God. You know, it's an interesting question. When did the Spirit fall upon the believers gathered here in this story here in chapter 10? It's when Peter spoke the word of God. That's when it happened. Peter didn't stop and say, okay, guys, I want you to just repeat after me. Shandala, shandala, she'll be coming around the mountain on a Honda real fast. Just get real fast. We'll, we'll kind of get kick-started. You know? He didn't do that. He didn't do that. It was when Peter spoke the word of God. I came across this in my studies, and this blew my mind because I've, I'll be honest with you, I've never seen this in Scripture before, and I want to share this, and maybe you guys know, and I'm just slow to, slow to the picnic or whatever, but, but uh, Colossians chapter 3, and I kind of opened with that this morning when I was reading before we worship, but Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then it follows with some commands. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Bond servants, obey all things. Obey in all things your masters. We all know that, right? We know Colossians chapter three. Ephesians five says this, verse eighteen: and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse nineteen speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he follows with, wives, 
Submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Listen, the results of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly are the same results as being filled with the Spirit. I'll be honest with you, I had never seen this before. The word and the Spirit are linked together. Do you want to walk in the Spirit? You know, we're told that we're commanded to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. Then immerse yourself in the Word of God. Immerse yourself in the Word of God by obeying it. Not just reading it, but obeying it and applying it. And when you start doing that, you'll find yourself being in step with the Spirit. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's why I'm encouraging all of us, man, let's start reading the Bible together next year in 2023. Let's start applying it. Let's start walking it. And watch what the Holy Spirit will do through the teaching and through the word of Christ. The person God uses is immersed in God's word and in step with the Holy Spirit. Second part of verse 46, Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. I just have a couple observations before we close. First of all, it would appear that no infants were baptized in Cornelius' household. And we're not told that specifically, but those that were baptized were filled with the Holy Spirit and praising God with the gift of tongues. And so it would appear, just my observation, that there were no infants that were in that in his household. And just like in the case with the Ethiopian eunuch and with Saul of Tarsus, baptism followed belief. In other words, they weren't baptized to be saved. They had already put their trust in Christ Jesus, and then they were baptized as a result of their faith. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. From now on, the order will be hear the word, believe on Christ, and receive the Spirit, and then be baptized and unite with other believers in the church to serve and worship God. Just a couple observations I saw on that. Listen, God uses human instruments like you and I to share the gospel and to do his work. And you don't know the impact of what God will do through you. Man, you just allow him to to, to just be his vessel and allow him to work through you. You don't know the impact that he will use through you. Peter's obedience here literally paved the way for you and I, Gentiles, who are here this morning to become partakers of the kingdom of God. Because of that step of obedience, God had Peter in the right place, and man, we're the the beneficiaries of of his obedience. Listen, do you want to have an impact on this world for Christ and for his kingdom? Are you teachable? Do you have everything all figured out? Because if you are, you're spiritually prideful. Are you teachable? Can God show you new things? Are you growing in your knowledge and your faith, man? Are you, are you being stretched? Are you flexible? Are you flexible? You know, um, can God interrupt your life? Can he interrupt your schedule? Can he say, no, I, I don't want you here. I, I actually want you over here. And maybe you're going to be put in a humbling, an uncomfortable humbling circumstance. Look, it stinks over here. Yeah, but you're where I want you to be. Just trust me. Can, can you do that? 
And are you immersed in God's word and in step with, your, with his spirit? Because if you are, man, you're primed for God using you to impact his kingdom. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.